Welcome to the Dizzy Discussions Podcast, the clinician's guide to vestibular rehab. Our goal is to spread knowledge and awareness of current and up-and-coming vestibular assessment, evaluation, and treatments for the vestibular veteran and novice alike. Without further ado, here's your hosts, Eddie Ernst and Dr. Stephen T. Marina. Discussions, the Clinician's Guide to Vestibular Rehab. Um, this is Stephen Tiarina here with Eddie Ernst, and today we have a special guest, Morgan Kriz. Morgan is a physical therapist. She received her Doctor of Ther- Physical Therapy Education from University of St. Augustine. Um, she's currently a practicing physical therapist in Washington State, and she manages and runs the website vestibulartherapyspecialists.com. And she provides telehealth services uh, to patients looking um, for vestibular management. So what we're going to do is we're going to turn it over to Morgan to introduce herself a little bit more. Morgan, do you mind telling us a little bit about yourself, a little bit about your journey with vestibular rehab, how you got started? And then the fun thing we're going to do today is we're just going to chat about vestibular rehab, the things that are interesting to you. Um, we get to geek out. Um, this is our favorite time of the <laughs> of the day uh, to actually talk about one of the most interesting topics to us. So um, why don't I just have you take it away, Morgan? Yeah, thank you. Um, hi, I'm Morgan. And uh, as announced, I'm from the Seattle area. So I moved up to Seattle about six years ago. And I'm currently practicing um, at a ear, nose, and throat specialty clinic. Um, I am their only vestibular PT there. And then as Steven mentioned, I kind of found this niche about two years ago where I was seeing a need for um, continued therapy for a lot of my patients, but in a more virtual or remote way. And so that's where I came up with the vestibularspecialist.com was uh, as a resource for patients or um, people that need vestibular support um, not only from a physical therapy standpoint, but um, from all over the state of Washington, those on their journey with a vestibular disorder are always looking for specialists. So I'm trying to be a network or a connector to get people the resources they need closer to home with neurootologists, neurologists, uh, ENTs that specialize or appreciate dizzy patient population, and then uh, that's actually how I met Stephen. Was I um, try to connect them with a vestibular physical therapist closer to their home? So um, now, recently, uh, given the state of our um, of our you know world right now, the telehealth community has really become a valuable network. And so um, you know, just in the past six months, I would say my platform using virtual vestibular therapy has really kicked off and, um, and I feel like I can be a bigger connector with patients um, in that regard. Um, you asked, you kind of my journey. Um, so that's me right now. I feel like I'm still kind of going the, through a transition. So if I sound a little hesitant, I'm learning along the way sure. um, as I feel like I have the past several years. Once I got my, you know, PT, um, diploma and then, you know, uh, license. Um, I kind of knew I always wanted to do vestibular. I had an internship back. So I come from University of St. Augustine. That's a very ortho heavy um, curriculum. So I, you know, as everyone knows, you get like a brief 
brief little blippet of vestibular. He didn't even know how to pronounce it really, but I remember thinking, this is phenomenal. Like this three-dimensional apparatus in our heads does all this. And so, you know, we're learning about joint range of motion and I'm just dazzled with this fact that this system is so complex and it's the size of your thumbnail. So I've always really had an interest in it. And I, from then just kind of pushed to meet the professors that were doing vestibular and doing the neuro ortho combo mm -hmm. and had an internship um, uh, down at the Naval Medical Hospital in San Diego, the Balboa Naval Medical Hospital. So I had a, a three month internship under Dr. Kimberly Gottschall and she um, really just opened my eyes of um, working with um, the vets coming back with the mm -hmm. um, explosive trauma to their inner ear and amputations. And so um, that I, I've always, I still stay connected with her, but um, that's kind of where I really got my knowledge and base for appreciating um, that that's really what I wanted to do. And so, um, yeah. And, and then um, I just always said yes to dizzy patients. I've worked in mm. acute rehab right out of grad school. I, I just found any job possible. I worked in the hospital and then I worked at an outpatient ortho clinic and literally would just say yes to any dizzy patients or I would, um, you know, have always kind of, you kind of use my skills and, and try to um, help those patients. Or if another clinician I worked with didn't want to deal with the dizzy patients, I would take them on my schedule, no, no hesitation. Um, so as I realized that I needed to develop more skills, uh, I committed to the Herdman certification and um, paid for that out of pocket because my wow. clinic, yeah, I didn't have, I wasn't in a situation where they could support me. The clinic I worked for could support me on that. So um, hands down, the best investment I've ever made in my life. Um, I say that life meaning work life. Um, <laughs> and so that opened a lot of doors because once you kind of have a diagnostic platform and understanding of how to evaluate dizzy patients, um, it gave me the confidence to really go forward with that. So um, I got the opportunity. I, um, you know, fast forward, I had a couple jobs in between where I was an outpatient um, clinic and wasn't getting too much vestibular experience, but always kind of kept my hand in the pot to try to, you know, reach like I door to door, hey, I'll treat your dizzy patients. But finding out that there's kind of networks and bigger healthcare systems mm -hmm. kind of um, monetize on that and have their providers that they refer to. So um, my biggest opportunity came in, um, so Swedish hospital is a big entity here in Seattle. And um, I had the opportunity of working under Dr. Judith White. She's a neurootologist and she um, formed the Balance Center, which was, um, it had all the vestibular testing, audiologist who specialized in um, inner ear disorders. Uh, she was the practitioner and then I was the vestibular PT. And honestly, the only way I got that job was I hunted down this therapist um, when I didn't know what I was doing prior to the Herdman certification and said, let me pick your brain. Like we met up a couple times. She left that position, called me because she knew that I had the Herdman certification and that was where I realized that that was like the best investment I could have ever had. So, wow. So it got you a job then. It did. It Gosh. really did. So it paid, I want to say it paid off. Like, uh, again, it kind of, um, 
it wasn't cheap, but it was definitely when you put the value to it, just incredible. So yeah, no, it really did get me a job, um, which led me. So unfortunately, uh, the um, neurootologist that I work under um, had to leave the practice for medical reasons. So um, I, she really believed in vestibular PT. And so I think that's where um, more confidence came was because uh, when you find those providers that see mm -hmm. what we do and really value um, what we do for patients, uh, it feels really good to work with them and, yeah. and it's a collaboration. So um, it gave me more confidence just to, you know, ask more questions, approach physicians and, you know, be a part of their team really. And so um, this other neurootologist that I worked with, he jumped practice to this current clinic that I'm working for. And I remember calling him up and saying, you know, let's work together on this. And he, again, found a position in the clinic that he worked in. Um, and so that's where I'm at. And it's kind of, I, I sound like I've jumped ship out of safety, <laughs> but I knew I always really wanted to do vestibular patients. And so I've really fought to keep that. And, sure. um, and cause I've done the ortho route and there throughout the past several years I had, um, to go and I didn't have to go work. I was uh, encouraged to go work um, to fill some space at an ortho clinic, uh, but I always found that I go right back to my, how's your balance? Let's check your ocular motor. Um, and so I think I've, no matter where I'm at, I still will probably have, um, have the vestibular mindset. Um, so yeah, that's kind of where I'm at right now. Um, one other investment that I made uh, in the transition a few years ago, uh, I also used my funds. So this time I actually did have some money for continuing ed, but I put that toward a pair of Frenzel goggles mm. uh, that have been my little lifesaver. And you know, at this time, I, and that's kind of where I decided to kind of branch off and do my own thing is I've now become who people refer to in this area, be, you know, just because I have the equipment and um, and kind of always say yes kind of thing, you know, sure. like no case is not exciting to me or um, the the network that I've, you know, I think anywhere you move to a new city, it takes a couple of years to just understand the lay of the land, let alone with um, providers and resources that you have. But once you kind of find those people, it feels really good to, bounce ideas off one another because vestibular patients certainly are a multidisciplinary approach. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, that's kind of where I'm at at this time. Hopefully that explains my road. Slightly. Absolutely. I, I love how you said that you, everything, like no matter who you have now, you always bounce back somehow to vestibular. Like how is this affecting your, or how is your vestibular system affecting this? How is, you know, all that going into, because I'm, I'm the same way in in a sniff now, uh, I worked outpatient in a at physical therapy and balance centers, so 99% vestibular imbalance, and that's all I did every day. Uh, every day, and I, I loved it. And now I'm in a sniff where, like, I'm trying to go out of my way to dig to find people who are dizzy and find ways to to start treating that as well, because um, it's all ortho, and, and ortho's ortho's ortho. You know, a knee is a knee, a knee, a hip is a hip is a hip. Um, and so it's not that I don't like that, but like, I'm still finding that like I'm incorporating a lot of like the sensory in integration, um, 
techniques to, you know, treating them for their balance, you know, oh yeah, you're off balance. Is it just because your hip is weak or is it because you've been so reliant on your sense of touch for so long? Well, let's start messing with that a little bit. Um, so I love that you touched on that because I, I do that all the time right now too, just trying to find a way to, uh, to treat somebody's dizziness or, or their balance, you know, in, in a different, uh, different context. Um, there's something else you said that I really like too. Oh, the, uh, kind of being the person for it and like having that trust from other providers. Um, that's my sniff right now, at least the people that I work with the most, they have all like when I first day I came in, I said, dizziness is my thing. That's what I want. I want to treat dizziness. You have somebody that's dizzy, you send them to me so I can do something. Um, and we had have had one or two patients where that's their complaint and everybody had multiple people come up to say, Hey Eddie, come, come check this person out. So, um, like you said, you know, it's nice to have that vote of confidence from your, your colleagues to say, we trust you to be able to find a, a way to fix this or find a way to treat that. So I love, um, at least those two points specifically, and it did, obviously everything else is great too, but those two points specifically are kind of what I related to in that right now in a sniff. And I love that you touched on those. Yeah. And I, I'll, um, Steven and I had this conversation when we first met, but um, not everyone loves dizzy and or not everyone loves those complicated disequilibrium patients and um, even in the physical therapy world. So um, when I first got in and experience is everything, I think a lot of trial and error, getting these mm -hmm. different types of patients under your, um, you know, find out what works, what doesn't work, takes some time and a lot of caseload. Um, and and uh, and with that is um, yeah is that not everyone has to be dizzy to be off balance or feel mm -hmm. that disorientation um, fatigue late afternoon right there's like a hundred things that the balance system or the vestibular mm -hmm. system just because it's so highly connected with that central autonomic system um, you can always kind of find something um, and from marketing standpoint I thought when I first got started the only way to get patients was going to um, primary care physician offices, mm -hmm. urgent care clinics, which are great resources, but they usually shut the door on you or they never allow you to get to that next step mm -hmm. uh, to actually get a referral coordinator. So really I then took it to, um, okay, well the Seattle Dizzy Group is, uh, mm. is a um, support network that I volunteered, you know, a presentation, you know, and I get invited back every year, which is great, but um, there's your patient population right there. Yep. And then word of mouth gets stimulated. And then also um, other, other physical therapists, right? Like mm -hmm. someone who's treating someone's shoulder and they keep complaining that they're dizzy every time they lay down, um, you know, come see Morgan, you know, maybe it is BPPV and then you send them right back, right? It's all about re uh, making those relationships. Um, Cause I've, I've found, and I, it's a luxury now. I feel very honored that I can say that, if someone has hip pain, like I really truly don't feel confident. Like I can give you basics, but let me get you in the hands of someone that really can sure. help you with this. And then you start to, uh, developing those networks. So it's um, good on that realm. So I've learned a lot about marketing and trying to get that caseload. So um, those I think for, for any of the listeners though, that is so key. And what Eddie and Morgan are saying, it, it's just, if you want a niche area where you can help people and with maybe 60, 70% of the people that you see, you're going to be able to drastically change your life in three visits. Like mm -hmm. the reason why we all get into PT, vestibular rehab is the way to go. 
Um, we have a ton of students that come through the clinic and they'll say, yeah, maybe a little bit interested in vestibular rehab. And then when they get out, they're like, yeah, I just managed a vestibular patient in the acute care setting, or yeah, I just landed a new job because I told them I have vestibular experience. Like it's, it's definitely worth the effort. Yep. It's definitely worth the uncomfortable learning curve. Definitely worth the occasional almost getting vomited on. <laughs> I think it's definitely worth it. And from a business standpoint, our clinics or small outpatient private practice, we have sometimes 30, 40% of our caseload is vestibular patients. And we have this joke in clinic, we just say every patient is a vestibular patient. So we'll, we'll finish their treatment for their hip and we'll say, oh yeah, by the way, we have a vestibular specialty practice here. Do you know anyone who's dizzy? And they're like, oh yeah, I have dizziness every time right. I get out of bed. So totally. yeah, we, yeah, we like to, we like to increase the lifetime value of our customer from a business standpoint. So Eddie, like down in the sniff, I know he's doing that right now. He's like, um, BPP screenings on every, everybody. Uh, Absolutely. Right. <laughs> I love it. You know, and you get the patients who come in after a, you know, like kind of, you mentioned like a hip surgery who are in a sniff or they're now seeing outpatient ortho. Um, how do we keep them from preventing falls? Right. It's a, mm -hmm. it's just, um, and yeah, like you said, Stephen, to make an impact on someone who has a vestibular disorder's life is you're a friend for life for them. Mm -hmm. And you've then now just, um, well, one, you feel like a hero, especially if the Epley maneuver in one chance, you know, you, you get it, they walk away and you're like magic. Yeah, that's like a clean cut case that you just feel good every so often getting. Um, what I've been seeing a lot of lately, or I guess in the past couple of years, uh, and what I'm working with currently is like a lot of chronic vestibular disorders. Um, so they've, they've um, vestibular migraine. I work with a neurootologist that does um, acoustic neuroma surgeries. So I've been seeing a lot of vestibular hypofunction. Um, and those are usually pretty clean cut. You know, you, you, you take what you know about VOR and all the things that, you know, were very cookie cutter and those work for those patients. But then with the um, vestibular migraine or the chronic dizziness, uh, you get a lot more, you get to be a lot more creative and really developing a rapport with the patient is probably the single handed most important thing that oh, yeah. um, starts from day one on the first initial interview or, you know, evaluation. Um, which has kind of led me into new avenues of, you know, um, you know, you take the Herdman certification, you take these wonderful courses that people put out there on objectifying how to diagnose peripheral versus central. And then, um, and then you get to, as a clinician, kind of create what works and what doesn't, you know, you find out what doesn't work through a lot of trial and error, and then you find out what works and then, um, and, and kind of, collaborate with others right and that's where I love that you guys are doing this is like yeah it's just so important to know one that you're doing like be validated like hey you're doing things good especially when you're first starting off like everyone's in the same boat at some point mm -hmm. um and then everyone's passion just seems to drive them into you know where it is they are in the future right so if you're just starting off with vestibular um peripheral versus central is what we're always taught not all central findings need a refer out right mm -hmm. away. And I think once I kind of got the confidence that, cause, cause I, you know, you do that, you see, oh, central, um, you know, like a 
vertical nystagmus or their convergence is off. And, uh, but you might lose that patient, which is every patient has a journey. And, and when they first enter your office, I have a form they fill out that I've created. Um, and then I have the DHI or the dizziness handicap inventory. And when it's just, you know, DHI 20 and under 20, you know, uh, we know that's a mild um, impairment, but when you get the patients that circle every single thing on that sheet and take notes and like, you know that there's an anxiety component behind that and that their journey has been uh, quite a doozy and you may be their last resource or you must might be their most valuable resource so like i said just finding the people in your community that also like dizzy um i work with a nutritionist that i found i work mm -hmm. with a um uh, uh ophthalmologist that can appreciate like you send out for ophthalmology or um, optometry and they come back normal right their vision system is intact and we know that because they Put their head up against the little um, device and they measure their glasses but they never ask them to stand up with those progressive lenses and walk around mm -hmm. um, which is then where a little bit more information like well maybe your vestibular system's affected here so um, right. i guess um, i don't know where i'm going with that it's more um, yeah i like what you're saying though like you're i think that's the so i think for most people we get the, we've seen it where it's like, all I know is BPPB. I work in outpatient ortho. And yeah, that's probably 80% of what you're going to see. And you're saying it's, it's great because once you create the specialty, you get those patients, but then you get this whole group of other patients that require like more clinical reasoning, really digging. And I really find those the most meaningful patients to work with. I, they're so challenging. I, I definitely know that and I will admit it with, with our other therapist here and with you guys that I struggle still at times with patients with vestibular migraine or with chronic dizziness. They are hard patients to treat, just like chronic pain in the back is hard to treat. But it's, it's, really, like, it's really meaningful because you create that deep relationship with them. And you're trying to, you're really kind of like their coach and you're trying to coach them through figuring out this journey versus just labeling them as oh yeah, you have chronic dizziness. Well, you're like, let's dig deeper. What affects that? What are drivers? What are, you know, is anxiety the driver? Okay, how do we manage that? Can we get you to someone to help you with that? And then it's more like we're working together versus like us treating them. So maybe maybe that's where you're going. That's what I was thinking, so. Yeah, I fully agree with that. And I, I think with the um, chronic dizziness and the vestibular migraine, uh, when when we learn in all of these courses or, you know, from what we know about our testing, you know, um, sometimes taking people through all those visual tests really aggravates people and then slamming them with vestibular ocular reflex exercises on day one uh, flares them up, right? It doesn't really establish trust and safety, right? I mean, when anyone's anxious, the first thing they, you know, it's like being chased by a tiger, right, on different levels. And I think the coping strategies that people have, um, this is kind of where I've taken my realm of, of interest is, you know, I've taken some courses on motivational interviewing. Mm -hmm. I've looked at different, um, I've talked a lot, to, I've reached out to several psychologists who, because when you have that conversation with the patient, like, how do we manage your anxiety? Or have you worked with somebody in the past? Or 
I've, I've said it a thousand times where I have le learned from it is, you know, well, maybe we can get you with a social worker or a psychologist and you lose people right away, mm -hmm. right? Like, I don't, I don't have a problem. So, you know, from day one, just like a mindfulness, um, what I find a lot of is, is knowledge, right? If the patient doesn't know what's going on and they have seen thousands of specialists or thousands of different, um, they've been to a thousand appointments and everything is ruled out, right? You look fine. You look great. Um, the one thing that they're looking for from us on day one is just validation that mm -hmm. they have something. Um, and I think that's where our vestibular world is just so great is because, I mean, it's a continued learning and I, still so much research is going into it, but um, people can finally, like, no one's like, what's your inner ear? Excuse me. Like, uh, what is that? And then when you just like show people a lot of visual diagrams and like validate that their visual system's doing so much more and everything's a little wonky because of it. And then as you take them through the tests, you know, like a cause and effect, right? Did that make you a little wonky or dizzy? Yes. Well, here's some strategies right off the bat, right? Sitting tall, closing your eyes, breathing, right? Everyone holds their breath. Um, and so self-efficacy from day one really can empower the patient. And I think that's where maybe I've found some strengths in dealing with the chronic dizziness or the vestibular migraine. Um, and Stephen and I talked, but like the nutritional standpoint from a PT perspective, we don't learn nutrition in school. We don't learn psychology. Um, but those are some avenues I've kind of looked into because I realize that patients aren't probably going to go follow up with the next medical provider because they've already been to hundred. Um, and so using those tactics um, in our clinic kind of gets you through uh, finding success with some patients because that's kind of what it's all about, helping them out their journey. Absolutely. I, I love how you, the self-efficacy part. Um, I feel like deep down for me, that's like part of why I love it so much is because most of the time there's so little that I can like physically do for them um, that they can't rely on me to do it. Like they have to take control. Um, and that's part of why I liked treating uh, chronic pain more than I did acute pain because acute pain you know, a lot of times there's stuff that I can physically do for them. And I know the like actuality of them getting reliant on it is that much. Um, but I love like when people are able and have to sorry, uh, take control of it on their own and they have to, other than BPPV, which, you know, obviously we do have to do and I love treating BPPV. Um, but just the vestibulopathies and dizziness and 3PD, like you have to do the work. I can't do it for you. And then people do it and they get better. And then they're like, oh, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. I didn't do anything. I sat here and told you to shake your head 20 times. You're the one that did it. You got better. Um, so I love that you touched on that because that's a huge, huge thing for me is just I don't and I can't do anything. You have to do it. I'm just here to guide you. I'm your Sherpa. You're climbing the mountain, not me. Totally. Yeah. And uh a patient years ago came into me and was like, I, I get you now more, or I get your protocol now. You literally make me feel worse, but with a positive attitude. Eddie, <laughs> you say that all the time. <laughs> you know? Um, and I think that's, that's it, right? We're, from our standpoint, like, uh, yeah, please do these exercises because they're, you know, of major value, but uh, smile when you're doing it, right? It's, um, yeah. It's, yeah. So, uh, 
but but intense, right? And that's yeah. where I, a lot of education to the patients is like, why are you doing this? Don't yeah. just look at your thumb and turn your head. Like, you know, keep it in focus. Go at yeah. the pace that your brain wants. Um, why are you dizzy at 4 p.m.? Because you just, you know, totally emptied your gas tank all day long and mm-hmm. maybe s- decided not to have lunch and got a terrible night's sleep. Um, but when you start to put it on the patient, on like understanding triggers or kind of understanding um, cause and effect, like I said before, they come into you a couple sessions later and are like, I got dizzy yesterday, but it's totally my fault. Like I, you know, went out for pho last night and had a sodium kick and, you know, spun out, whatever, if someone has Meniere's or something, but then they realize, okay, well, my anxiety wasn't as bad my duration of symptoms weren't as bad and the intensity wasn't as bad because I have a little rationale behind why I got a little discombobulated yeah. or wonky. So it's pretty fun. Um, so I see, or you talked about in, in kind of in the bio that you sent us too. So you're using a lot more telehealth with vestibular. Um, mm. Can you kind of go into like, I, I don't know how to, how to phrase this question correctly, but I guess the efficacy of doing that for, for me, like one of the barriers that myself and my PT have run into when kind of talking about doing telehealth for vestibular imbalance in the future is the safety aspect. Like if you do want somebody to do like a modified cat sib or sit sib, however you decide to pronounce it, you know, what's the safety implications in having them stand on their own feet together, eyes closed, or, you know, doing, trying to do some of the tests, you know, how, how are you doing that with them? Um, and, you know, what kinds of struggles have you uh, run into and how have you overcome them for, for the vestibular side? Yeah, it's a good question. Um, so, um, so step one, I always, uh, just safety wise, I always have a contact, an emergency contact and have the patient's address. Um, so if anything were to happen, I can call 911 or call their emergency contact. And then, um, you know, a good portion, uh, so the technology part is its own entity, but once I get started with a patient, um, you kind of learn their limits, right? Pretty quick, right? If someone, um, is ready to go and they've already tried the Epley at home, you know, yeah. great, let's go to your bedroom and, and let's just, you know, see, you know, test the Dick's Hall Pike and take care of the maneuver. So you can kind of see where people's comfort level is. Um, I, I had one patient that um, was pretty acute and uh, she'd been to the ER and had the full workup. So, mm-hmm you get the different cases and and, and I I always kind of get more confident. They've been to the ER and they've ruled out all the big, bad and ugly. um, And I'm next in line. Um, I just really want to take that first session and make sure they're safe around their home. So I may not take them through um, extreme tests. Like I might use the functional gate, you know, they're already walking through their home. Let's have them do the functional gate assessment Mm -hmm. um, or uh, let's create a safe place. Usually if they're, um, near a desk, you know, if they're on their, um, desktop, then I can have them hold on to their desk or be close to their desk. Cause in everything I give them from day one, obviously I want them to create a safe place of, um, practice, right? So if I do some eyes closed balance, I'm not going to have them do the sharpen Romberg if I know they're going to tip over after doing the Romberg. So, um, 
plus with that, I'll exclude a lot of things, right? Maybe I'll just start then, because ocular motor is kind of difficult, no, not mm -hmm. gonna lie with, um, obviously on um, Zoom conference, that's what I use is Zoom, but um, maybe I'll have the patient do it themselves, right? Does convergence irritate you? Is that central finding, is your peripheral offline or are you just you know, zoned into your little world? And then we work more on, um, okay, well, when you walk, let's turn your head or let's get your cervical spine, at least you know, even in sitting, um, do you know where you are in space? So maybe I use the joint perception error test. Um, so I can give them some tools of value. Um, if they're, I haven't had any incidences, I guess I'll knock on wood because maybe it'll happen tomorrow, but um, you kind of get a read of your patients. Like it's the same thing in being in clinic. Um, sometimes you get those red flags and you're like, okay, we need to take care of this immediately. But most often, once I kind of go through my questionnaire, I have a really extensive online questionnaire prior to them, me seeing them. So I kind of already know their history um, or any red flags that have been rolled in or out and then um, go from there. So uh, I don't think telehealth though is perfect in all scenarios, um, meaning uh, there is a lot to say about being animated and showing patients. Um, like I love to use my hands. I love to really be passionate about, like we talked about intent. Um, and really providing patients with a secure environment. So it's kind of cool actually when they're in their own home, especially the vestibular migraine is, okay, well, let me see what you're doing at your desk all day long. Like, what is your world like? So I'm actually in their environment already. Um, I've done a couple home evaluations, like, uh, you know, like they're getting a lot better. Well, let's make sure your home's safe. Let me give you some suggestions. Let's go into your bathroom. Like, why do you always get unsteady or off balance when you're in the bathroom? So I've gotten creative with it. I think it's not ideal in all scenarios. Like I kept sure. saying, like if, if I need to put my hands on somebody, I do have clinic space, so I'll invite them to come. But I'm getting patients from you know three to four hours away. Uh, that's kind of where then I try to find a clinician closer to them in case mm -hmm. um, they need that hands-on. Because um, cervicogenic is you know a huge huge component on things, and if um, the techniques I give them aren't enough, then um, I try to connect them with somebody closer. Does that answer your question? Yeah, I yeah. This is Stephen. I um, I've kind of experienced the same thing as you. Like, I think Eddie, you guys should go for it. <laughs> I'm I'm all on board with it because I think as we're elevating our profession, we're moving away from first being the treatment providers to being like the first line responder. So that's the kind of the route I take. First visit is just making sure that person's safe. Same thing, thorough history, rule out red flags. Um, I do my hints exam with them there. I get them up close to the screen. I'm doing tests of skew. I have them do self-convergence. Um, for VOR, I've kind of adapted it from the, um, oh crap, why am I blanking? The concussion, the bomb screening. So I'll have them do 30 seconds of VOR. I'll look to see if I see any gaze oslopsia. I'll have them do a quick head thrust. I said, look straight at the camera do a quick thrust of your head to the right, to the left, even though it's not gonna be sensitive or specific, mm -hmm. I'm just looking, do I catch that little corrective saccade? Sure. And um, I think it's worked pretty well. I struggle at times, it depends. So I struggle with seeing um, for positional vertigo if I can see the nystagmus, but I've treated multiple patients for positional vertigo just based off a of symptom presentation and it's worked out really well. 
but with those tricky ones, if they're using their phone for Zoom, I'll have them hold their phone up to their eye. <laughs> so I definitely think it's, it's, it's workable, but it's not ideal for all cases. But I definitely would agree with you, Morgan, that I'm kind of feeling the same way. And I love that you're flipping the script and you're doing home evals, you're doing workspace evals. I think that's what telehealth gets us that we can't do in clinic. And that's a completely separate area too. Yeah. Uh, totally. Yeah, you're right. With um, with the positional testing at home, like it's pretty cool. I mean, now that I kind of have my own thing going, I can give people my business cell phone number. And I've had calls on Saturday morning, right? Because morning is when vertigo comes. And I can now be that person that they text and be like, oh, it's back. What do I do? Right. And so uh, I don't know. I used to give out my cell phone number when I worked not for myself and cause right. Cause we become that patient's lifeline in a way. Um, and I don't want, and, and then I, when I didn't have control over my schedule, um, you know, I don't want someone to wait a whole week to come see me. Like just let's talk it over. And now that we have telehealth and, you know, insurance is reimbursing. That's such a great silver lining for all of us right now is, um, you don't need to go to urgent care. Like, let's just do the F way together, please. Um, which reduces a lot of anxiety too for, for people. Um, but yeah. Um, and I think as we move forward um, and kind of learn from one another on what works, like, so there is no like um, efficacy really like Steven, you can let me know what you're thinking, but like you kind of just wing it sometimes like at first. And then you kind of like, at least for me, I just try to be consistent with all my measuring. Right. So if I, try to do like what you said, you, you just have them do the um, gaze stabilization, time it, you know, you still maybe I use a metronome. So I mm -hmm. still know their hurts that they're able to achieve how long their recovery is after they stop the exercise. Um, so I can still objectify tons of things, but it really, I don't know, I, I guess it kind of Eddie, what you were saying is like, it puts it back on the patient. If they're in their own environment and you're doing the exercises right there, um, you know, look at that beautiful picture that you hung on your wall years ago. Like, let's take a look at that. Let's walk toward it. Let's move our head. You know, like you're going to be doing all this anyway. Let's make it for the patient versus giving them a handout with a checkered B behind it that they're probably lost after day two. Um, and let's make it more in their environment. Um, you know, cause we're asking them to do these exercises, you know, um, 15, 20 minutes a day, but yeah. not all at once. So it's just kind of like when you're brushing your teeth, let's do this. When you're waiting for water to boil, why don't you practice your eyes closed balance or let's stretch every time your little dog barks or something. I don't know. You just kind of, you're in their world at that point. Absolutely. I, 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 I love, I love that. I did have for both of you, I find it, well, I guess interesting because I've like my perspective was always never to have somebody try it on their own, but having people go through the uh, Dix Hallpike and Epley on their own. Well, I guess just looking it up, my guess, my like previous biases against it were like people go through the emergency room doc says, okay, Google Epley maneuver and then try that on your own. But that's different from what you guys are doing. Um, in which you're like physically, well, not physically, but virtually walking through the entire thing with them and watching the eyes. So that's kind of where even in telehealth 
for vestibular, that's, you know, if that's what you can do with people is you can watch their eyes and, or like Steven, you know, you may not see the nystagmus cause you're not there, mm-hmm. but just treat off the symptoms. So you're actually making sure that they're going to the right side. They're doing the mm-hmm. correct movements with it, you know, hopefully not converting it from posterior to horizontal. Um, but you're, you're going through it with them. So that way they can still get better on their own. And, you know, like Morgan said, if it pops up on a Saturday, Saturday morning, they can, you know, call you, take the three minutes out of both your days to treat that for them. So they don't have to be miserable for, for a couple of days trying to deal with that on there. So that was just one thing I wanted to kind of make sure I point out that you guys are doing that, you know, instinctively for, for me, when you said it, I kind of inside did that. Um, but I like that that's something that like you guys were saying that telehealth is bringing to the table in terms of we can treat these people you know, that usually require hands-on work, we can treat them at home and let them do the work and get better on their own. Um, Have you guys had any conversions or any issues as far as um, having them treat themselves with the Epley? I have one patient and that I'm working with that um, had positional vertigo. We resolved it and um, he does suffer from anxiety and depression. And so he's struggling a little bit more getting past that. Mm -hmm. Um, And so it was kind of nice to telehealth. We could kind of work together to kind of work on those after effects, kind of the fear avoidance that developed because he was doing a lot of epi maneuvers on his own and he wasn't successful. So then we were able to do it together. It was successful. And then, but now he's developed a whole kind of fear avoidance complex around having positional vertigo. Mm. And so actually what I'm going to do is for him, and I think it's going to be helpful for him. We're going to bring him in clinic and we're going to put him on the goggles. So it gives him that validation. Hey, things are resolved. But yeah, I think, yeah, it's, it's sometimes tough, but it's doable. And if the patient can't benefit from telehealth, then we can refer them like Morgan's doing to someone close to them. So I think at least then we can be that first line provider. Yeah. Yeah, I would agree. I think when someone gets vertigo, or, you know, specifically since we're talking about BPPV, uh, they fall under two camps. They either Google themselves, right, or mm-hmm. their mother-in-law told them to do the Epley, mm-hmm. uh, and they they do it, right? They find these great things. They find the somersault, but they don't know what side to do it on, so they just do it on both, right? And uh, so you get that camp where they they do it, and then they're not doing it correctly, or you get those that literally don't move their head for days, and they sleep upright, and mm-hmm. they the fear avoidance, right? And so, yeah, I think, um, and that's kind of how you know. If someone's like, oh God, no, I haven't laid flat in three weeks. Okay, well, I'm probably not going to ask you to do the maneuver in your home unless someone's mm-hmm. there, right? Like, let's make sure, sure okay. your, your significant other's there or you can have a friend come over. Um, but when patients do it at home and they don't know what side to do the Epley on, like, right, the Epley is the most common, but if you do the left and right, you just totally, uh, you know, put the crystal back and then send it back out again. So they're doing the wrong technique. Uh, and then those are when the convergence happens. So, um, you know, at the APTA conference in Denver this year was like a huge, um, uh, like apogeotropic or all these different patterns of nystagmus that occur. It's because these, you know, patients are kind of converting things and making it all more complex or they're getting into more than one canal, like it's getting all confusing where maybe if they just kind of had the expert right away, took care of it, um, then you're not going to get these convergence and these like non, uh, 
um, resolving BPPV cases. Um, yeah, I would yeah. I would say that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think the tough part would be with telehealth would be the cupulo patients getting them <laughs> on a speed. I haven't experienced that yet, and I probably will. Um, that's why I want to bring this patient in because I want to make sure I'm not missing anything. I want to put him on the Frenzel lenses. I actually have a really cool story, Eddie. You would love this. We had a horizontal canal um, cupulo patient. Um, it was a textbook, uh, treated it with a liberatory maneuver, and then um, she's feeling better, but then she develops this low-grade dizziness. I'm like, what's going on? So I kind of take her through the exam. I didn't put the frenzel lenses on at this point, just because everything was clear cut resolved. Great. And then we put the frenzel lenses on her again without fixation. And she has at rest uh, a gaze of nystagmus, mm -hmm. just at rest without fixation. We put her in the bow test. She has the, again, the textbook presentation. We put her in the lean textbook presentation, but it wasn't visible in room light. We weren't able to see it on the supine roll but there was enough otoconi on the cupula to cause enough drag that was causing this postural sway. And we wouldn't have caught it if we wouldn't have gone the extra step of throwing the goggles on. Yeah. It was, it was just, it was great. It was, I haven't seen that happen before, but you're right, Morgan. It's like, they're in these types of positions. We've resolved it, but if we don't dig a little deeper, then we might miss that like little clue. And so we saw the gaze of nystagmus, then we're like, let's try the bow and lean, and there it was. So now we're back to those maneuvers that we thought were fully resolved, and we're just gonna try to get that last amount off. And then I, we, what we expect should be the system, then we can rebalance everything back to normal. But she can't get back to normal if there's still drag. And everything that she's saying, she said, when I do a quick turn, I'm feeling dizzy, but not a spin. When I bend and put my shoes on and I come up, I'm feeling dizzy without a spin. Most people might just think it's motion sensitivity afterwards. Yeah. She actually has, she still has cupulothiasis. It's just not enough otoconia to cause full-blown vertigo. It's, it's crazy. I love it. It was so Is she great. getting better? Is she getting so, better now? So I just saw her yesterday and that's what we determined. Um, so I'm going to see her again next week but she was so happy and I showed her the videos. She completely understood it. And she was just so happy that we figured out what was going on. And now we have the game plan. I'm like, we, we know what we're doing. We, we have the game plan. Now it's just going to be a matter of getting that last amount off. And I tell people, it's like the fluff that's on your shirt. You might have to move it a few times before that fluff comes off. And then that way we get her on board with this might take a few more sessions versus the one session to cure the vertigo, this is the residual mm -hmm. amount that's left. But yeah, I thought that was great. It was super fun. So that would be tough with telehealth if we don't have those goggles, but sure. that's when you would bring them in clinic, I would say. Yeah, it, like if, if, yeah, if you don't see progress within one or two visits mm -hmm. and they're doing stuff at home, yeah, always refer them in and yeah. And to your point, like I think the goggles are, hands down one of the best tools to be able to give the patients what they're coming in for right like mm -hmm. you could go off as subjective but if and, and that's how i felt like i learned a lot was seeing all the different nystagmus patterns and um, if they came in with the diagnosis i would slap the goggles on anyway and just be like what do we get with this you know and and you can 
you're not always going to see a rotational nystagmus um, or the gaze evoked, but uh, you can at least differentiate then or like become more confident when you do see those clear cut, beautiful um, nystagmus patterns, then you feel more confident. And if it sounds like you have the recorded hypogoggles patients love the feedback, <laughs> right? Like when you do the head shake test, nobody enjoys that. But then when you can afterwards show them like, look, your eyeball stays right in the middle of your head. That's amazing. And they're like, oh, cool. Like they leave like, oh, my inner ear is good. Like it's strong. Like my left and right feel good. Okay. Well, I need to pay more attention to my neck now because I'm sitting at my desk all day. Um, you know, and so I think bringing that, bringing the patients on uh, board with those goggles is just like super fun. Because um, vestibulars, it's an invisible disorder, right? If someone mm -hmm. comes in with knee pain, you can show them that their knee's not moving as much, but you can't, you can't show them that the left ear is not working as well as the right. You can only make them a little dizzy or a little discombobulated and then show them strategies to, you know, correct that. And then they buy, you know, they figure, oh, okay, uh, that makes sense. Um, like I use a lot of ortho analogies um, with patients, like after BPPV, um, you know, it's like you sprained your ankle, you're not going to go running tomorrow, but um, you know, it'll take some time to heal, but you know, it's safe to move, right? Everything's about getting the patient moving again and giving them confidence. And so um, I think that's kind of the cool thing uh, with the goggles is like you said, Eddie, it's like, no, your eyes aren't moving anywhere. They're, all the crystals are back home with their friends. It's great. Yeah. So I'm glad you mentioned the neck. So what's your, um, like, what do you find that people are missing when it comes to cervicogenic dizziness? What do you, what are the tests that you're, you're going with to kind of rule in or rule it out? Um, and what's your general, um, treatment strategy for, for somebody with cervicogenic? Yeah. So, um, so I start, I usually start because so, we talked about making a patient really um, dizzy with the visual stuff is I usually just start with basic range of motion because mm -hmm. your left, uh, like, can you rotate your neck equally left versus right? So that puts it pretty simple in the patient's mind. Oh, you know what? I can't really turn to that left side as much. Um, number one, it, do you get a little dizzy? Number two, do you feel restrictions? I always ask that. And so if they're a little dizzy with it, okay. Well, let's actually just sit up tall, right? Let's, or actually I have them close their eyes first. So poor posture-ish, uh, close the eyes, have them do it again. Oh, that's so much worse. Okay, so maybe there's a little anxiety, maybe there's a little visual dominance going on here. Then I have them sit up a little taller. I use the, uh, I love ice cream. So I have them visualize that their head is an ice cream scoop and their body is the cone and I don't want them to lose any ice cream. So I have them move their head again, really trying to incorporate that postural sense. Um, if they still have neck restriction, but they aren't as dizzy, then that gives me a little bit more information that, you know, maybe the cervical spine's playing a role here or maybe um, somatosensory is not as weighted as we would like. And so, um, Usually I find that with the cervicogenic, it's um, sure you get those chronic neck patients, but really in their history, it's, I had a motor vehicle accident years ago. I, you know, there, nothing happened acutely. I mean, if it did happen acutely, um, it's more of a indicator that I'm on the right track. But um, when it's not, then usually it's a joint position error test. I love, I love using that test. Um, and then, uh, 
really trigger point release. So I usually take, you know, after I do the range of motion, I take five minutes. I do a lot of um, subscapular, like I have them throw a tennis ball under their arm and just, you know, loosen up the subscap. I have them put their hands on whether I'm in clinic or not, because it's an interesting concept, right, about touching patients these days. But again, self-efficacy from day one, I have them do a little suboccipital uh, assessment. Okay, is that side a little tighter? Okay, well, let's just push our fingers on that. Let's do a little trigger point release, move the head, feel safe. And honestly, that can free up a lot of restrictions. And, and then when they move their head, they don't, they can move it equally and they're not as dizzy. Um, so, and then, you know, depending on how much time I have or how much time that took, um, I'll take them into, you know, put the goggles on them and just confirm I don't have any kind of nystagmus patterns. Um, and then uh, when it comes to cervicogenic, I really talk more about posture. Like I find out what their life is every day. Usually it's that they're sitting at the computer and um, not paying attention to that. So um, that I've really, you know, I used to give out exercises like, well, you need to do rhomboid rows and you need to do uh, core stabilization. But um, people aren't really into that all the time, right? So uh, instead of them coming back and telling me that I haven't done my exercises and I'm like rolling my eyes, like, well, I can't help you. Uh, it's like, okay, well, what do you do during the day? Like, let's talk about this. Pay attention to where you are when you go to the restroom. Like, maybe take five minutes, close your eyes, like, make sure your neck is loose. Um, and, uh, and then it's that perception, right? It's, it's the neurological connection that I think is most important. That's where the joint error position testing comes in. Um, and then, uh, yeah, making sure their neck range of motion is symmetric. Sure. Perfect. Well, uh, 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 you broke it down to make it feel a lot more simple and, 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 easier to kind of work through than I think even for myself sometimes like when people hear cervicogenic dizziness there's a lot of mixed feelings and a lot of mixed um, responses on how to diagnose and how to treat it and everything like that so uh, uh, the, the way you broke it down at least for me made it seem much less you know for anybody that might be having somebody tomorrow with cervicogenic dizziness and I've never treated it before like the way you explained it made it seem very like methodical and like, Hey, it's not as scary. It's not as complicated as, as it, you know, obviously everything can be complicated, but you know, just going through your basics of the differential and ruling out the red flags and then going just with the normal next stuff and then kind of treating it from there. So um, I like the way you, you explained it on there, made it very, very straightforward and, and, you know, hopefully less scary to, to somebody who's treating it for the first time tomorrow or next week or whatever it may be. Yeah. And I think with that too, um, and, you know, I think the Rob Daniel class, um, uh, the cervicogenic class was probably uh, one of the best courses that you could take because um, a lot of times hypofunctions, vestibular hypofunctions are not uh, all the patients that we see. So um, the neck has to be involved. There's so many reflexes that connect with that. And um, patients probably have more of a history of you know, getting concussed or uh, having a neck injury when they were 10 or 20 years old, uh, fast forward many years. So they already have the cervical part of things and then mm -hmm. they get a neuritis or, and then they get BPPV and it's like the compounding. Um, they already didn't have the neck really supported. Then they get this little wonky, you know, inner ear situation going on, right? Because 
and that's what I found is with the hypofunction, like to be vestibular hypofunction, the testing for a physician to say, wow, you have an inner ear issue is a 25 to 27% difference on all of that vestibular function testing. So a lot of the patients I see are, you know, they have a 5% difference or they have a 12% difference, which, um, you know, from a physician standpoint, when they say, oh, your inner ear is not involved, well, yes, I guess to their standards, but you didn't ask them if they had a history of falls or you didn't ask them if they had a whiplash or you didn't ask them if they get migraines um, because all those little idiosyncrasies start to add up against the brain and it gets confused, which can cause the you know wonkiness or the, the quote unquote dizziness, whatever they're experiencing. Yeah, perfect. Um, I think Steven's got to get out of here soon, um, but as you're you had a, a elevator pitch to to a PT student, PTA student, PT, whatever it may be. You know they're not sure if they want to get into to vestibular rehab. Um, you know what would be your elevator pitch to them as to as to why they should? Uh, I would probably say well, I'd probably ask if they had any interest at all because I wouldn't want to like people that really if they're they know they're going to do ortho, go to ortho. You know, sure. I think that would be hard, but. Um, so is it okay if I kind of, like, I wouldn't want to convince someone not to. However, I would say um, that someone who may be interested but doesn't really know a lot about it, I would say, you know, just, um, you know, whatever you decide to do is find your passion or find your niche. Um, mm -hmm. And then finding mentors or finding people in your community that are um, of interest, like have all the same kind of interests and then just kind of developing your your little dizzy pack that way. Um, and then for, for clinicians, like we all come from different levels and backgrounds of um, what kind of um, settings we're in, but you don't have to have fancy stuff. You don't have to have a lot of money to, you know, treat patients. Um, I work in a very small space and have to get very creative, but it's really about the patient's journey. And so, um, you know, modifying or kind of understanding what the patient has at home and using um, resources and equipment that they have already, I think is makes, makes it more patient-based versus what we visualize these exercises have to be. Um, and the vestibular system's connected with everything. So if mm -hmm. you aren't interested, you should probably look into it because <laughs> it's amazing. Love it. Well, uh, Morgan, thank you very much for coming on to, to the Dizzy Discussions podcast and, and, and talking all things vestibular with us. Um, looking forward to, to hopefully spreading the telehealth love with my, with my PT and, and uh, getting on that so we can get some more outpatient, get some more Dizzy, dizzy folks to treat. Um, for Steven and, and myself, thank you very much, Morgan, and we look forward to, to connecting with you in the future. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to the Dizzy Discussion Podcast. We hope you enjoyed the show and learned something today. Be sure to continue the conversation on our Facebook groups, Evidence CEU Vestibular Study Group, or the patient-centered support group called Dizzy Discussions Vestibular Support Group. Also, be sure to like, subscribe, leave a review, and share this podcast with your friends and family. Thanks for tuning in. We look forward to sharing our next episode.